0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Okay, reading this out loud here. Shall there be an amendment concerning money that the state receives, including money known as custodial money? The statewide ballot measures this election are kind of head
1: I honestly feel really badly for the general public having to learn this much about state finances.
0: That's our politics editor, Megan Verlee. She and her team will join us today to clearly, conversationally explain what you are voting on. Our education reporter joins in as well. There's some fascinating backstory to your ballot this election, by the way. Then, life a year after wildfire scarred neighborhoods near Grand Lake.
2: I still don't feel okay. It doesn't feel quite like home.
0: Later, we explore the hidden wonders of the Colorado Plateau.
1: This is Alan from Golden. CPR is just so worthy that I felt really good about giving up my car to them. I donated my battered SUV, and CPR was able to receive more than three times what I would have gotten for it if I had just traded it in. Learn how to make your own impact with the vehicle donation on the support page at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. An important piece of mail arrived the other day. You likely got it too, a ballot for Colorado's November election. There are 3 statewide measures which we'll walk you through today. Politics editor Megan Verlee is going to help us. Hi Megan. Hey Ryan. And we're going to do something a little different. Normally I would walk into the studio well prepared having read articles and other background materials This time, as might be the case for a voter, I have tugged my ballot out of the envelope. And right here, right now, Megan, I'm going to cold read these measures.
1: Oh, good luck with that. (laughs) Why don't you start at the top with the constitutional amendment?
0: Okay, that's Amendment 78. Which
1: says something about how many constitutional amendments we've run in the past.
0: Shall there be an amendment to the Colorado Constitution and a change to the Colorado Revised Statutes concerning money that this state receives and, in connection therewith, requiring all money received by this state, including money provided to the state for a particular purpose, known as custodial money, to be subject to appropriation by the General Assembly after a public hearing? Repealing the authority to disperse money from the state treasury by any other means? requiring all custodial money to be deposited into the newly created custodial funds transparency fund and the earnings on those deposits to be transferred to the general fund.
1: I think we should just start describing this before people fall asleep. (laughs) My
0: head is spinning. I'm swimming Custodial seems to stand out as a term here, Megan Verley.
1: It definitely does. It's the key term in this constitutional amendment. But I honestly feel really badly for the general public having to learn this much about state finances. When this thing got on the ballot, I made a little wager with another reporter because neither of us knew what custodial funds were. And okay. I was completely wrong about what they are. So I've covered the state budget for years and years and years. And I had not heard of custodial funds.
0: Custodial funds. This is not presumably, you know, cleaning floors in the state capitol. It's not that kind of. Of custodian?
1: No, it's money that the state is a custodian of. So mm-hmm. it's money that comes from an outside source. And I think the two kind of really easy to grasp examples are when the state is part of like a multi million dollar settlement, like all that opioid Purdue Pharma money that's mm-hmm. uh, coming in. Or when the state, uh, and this is more rare, but it's been the case over the pandemic, gets a big pot of federal money that isn't like for an ongoing program. So the CARES Act last year, the American Rescue Plan, a lot of that comes in as custodial funds. And basically it goes to a department of the state. So uh, the opioid settlement goes to the attorney general's office. Uh, CARES Act money went to the governor's office, who is the custodian and has the final say in how that money is spent.
0: Is spent, is dispersed to others who will benefit benefit from it so it's the custodial role there and presumably this ballot measure is changing what how those funds are kept
1: are Spent and by whom. Okay. So like I said, uh, right now they're spent by the office that gets them. Uh, And let's just stick with the the opioid money because I think that's like really graspable. So that settlement goes to the attorney general's office. Attorney General Weiser has said that he's going to work with local governments to figure out how much each of them is going to get. But he's really handling all the spending. Now, all the other money or almost all the other money the state gets it goes through a, a normal budgeting process, which is overseen by this very powerful committee at the legislature, the, the Joint Budget Committee, that writes this giant, giant, giant budget and then all 100 lawmakers vote on it.
0: That uh, is very traditional avenue, the purse strings, you know.
1: Exactly. And so the folks who are running this constitutional amendment, they want the custodial funds to be handled the same way as other money, to be appropriated by lawmakers and to, to go through a public hearing process.
0: When I think of the attorney general, for instance, Megan, I don't think that I've elected someone whose strong suit is budgeting, right? <laughs> I'm thinking of that person as being very good in the law
1: legitimate. And the attorney general's office would certainly say, hey, we take this very seriously. We actually handle lots of settlements and we have ways to spend this cautiously and and appropriately. But this money does run into controversy. Uh, To go back to the CARES Act example from last year. So
0: all of that pandemic help money.
1: One and a half billion dollars. Jared Polis was the one who decided how to spend it, the governor. And because he did not consult the legislature and because some people felt left out of, of the largesse, uh, that came in for a lot of criticism. And, and he notably included the legislature in future uh, pandemic spending decisions.
0: Is this an anti-polis measure? Is this a partisan measure?
1: I wouldn't say that. The group that put it on, Colorado Rising Action, is an increasingly powerful small government group. And they're powerful because they get things on the ballot that the public will generally support. So I wouldn't say they're anti polis per se, but I would say that they are about limiting state spending. And in this case, they would say about increasing the transparency around state spending.
0: I mean, it's interesting. You have in Jared Polis a Democrat, but who has some libertarian views of finances? So I could see how, actually, they might be on the same page here. Are they? And is there opposition to this measure?
1: So I haven't asked the governor's office about this. I did go talk to a couple of Democrats on the state budget committee because I figured they would actually probably be where opposition would be coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first thing I heard, which I thought was really interesting, is I talked to Dominique Moreno. He's the chair of the Joint Budget Committee. And he said, you know what, when I first read this— I thought it was a really good idea. He's been concerned primarily around transparency with these funds. He says that, yes, they get some reports on how the money is spent, but sometimes the reports are really incomplete. And so as somebody who whose job is to kind of direct the spending of state money, he does think that lawmakers should have more oversight here. That said, he says that actually some of the language that will go into the state constitution is problematic.
0: Unintended consequences problematic? Exactly, that it's
1: broader than custodial funds and it might create some unintended consequences in the budgeting process that could lead to more bureaucracy and, and a less nimble government, which is a little ironic for something brought by a group that wants a smaller, more responsive government.
0: That's right. If the effect of this is to create more bureaucracy... So what? Is Moreno opposed to it? He wants to see different language?
1: Yeah, I think he would support other changes to the custodial funds process, but says that this constitutional amendment, especially because then the legislature can't change it, could be really tricky. Now, backers say they think that lawmakers can kind of sort out any unintended spending consequences and streamline the process. The other piece of opposition that I've heard from another Democrat on the Budget Committee and from other people who don't like this is it would make the state a lot less nimble. Like, if you think back to when the CARES Act was passed last year, Mm -hmm. the legislature wasn't in session. They, like, did not know how to safely be in session together in the Capitol. You know, we were still figuring out COVID protocols. They hadn't set up remote voting. They hadn't done all the stuff that they put in place since then to safely be a legislative body. If they had had to vote on how to spend the CARES Act money, that money would have sat in a bank account a lot longer.
0: We're talking about Amendment 78 on your statewide ballot in Colorado this election. Megan Verlee is helping us understand it and another, which we'll get to in a moment. Does 78, and you pointed out it's a constitutional amendment. Therefore, it's a little more ironclad than a statutory change, harder to change.
1: And it does take 55% of the vote to pass. That's the other part of it being a constitutional amendment.
0: Not just a simple majority of voters. Does it have any money if the legislature needs to hire people to do all this custodying, that's not what's well, terrible <laughs> turn of phrase. I'm embarrassed. I like it. Custody, no, custodying. Custodian. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: actually, I think they do think it'll add a couple of positions to state government uh, to kind of manage this money.
0: Okay. Next on the ballot is Prop One Nineteen.
1: True, but I think we're going to hold off on that one because the real experts are waiting in the wings. Public affairs reporter Benta Birkeland and our education reporter Jenny Brundine will be way better at explaining that than me. Okay,
0: they'll be here in just a moment. Uh, On to Prop 120. And again, it's called a proposition when it changes statute versus the amendment that we just talked about in 78.
1: Okay, shall I read 120? Uh, Yeah, but when you get bored, stop and I'll explain the rest. (laughs) Okay. This one's simpler, though.
0: Shall there be a change to the Colorado revised statutes concerning property tax reductions and, in connection therewith, reducing property tax revenue by an estimated $1.03 billion in 2023 and comparable amounts thereafter— by reducing the residential property tax assessment rate from... Okay, I'm at the point where I'm just (laughs) going to have you jump in. I'm hearing a lot about taxes in this, and particularly a reduction of them.
1: Yes, and this one actually, if you take it out of the ballot language, is quite simple. Backers want to reduce the assessment rate on really most properties, homes but also businesses and commercial properties, by 9% across the board. 9%
0: across the board, that sounds like a real savings on one hand, and yet the natural question arises, uh, what that means for the workings of government.
1: Yes, although I will actually say that savings might be the wrong way to think about it. Property values have risen so much that, you know, if you're a homeowner in the Denver metro area or the Colorado Springs metro area, um, really most parts of the state actually, your property taxes will probably still go up with a 9% rate cut. Mm -hmm. They just wouldn't go up as much but that does mean that local governments would collect less money than they expected. And in places where property values haven't risen dramatically, and this is especially true for parts of rural Colorado, people might end up paying less in taxes, and that's less money for local schools, fire districts, library districts, road maintenance, uh, kind of all the stuff your county provides gets less money if this cut passes. But there's a really big if, Ryan.
0: Okay. what What is it all dependent upon?
1: Well, because you are looking at your ballot and not your blue book, what you don't know is that Colorado lawmakers passed a law this spring that completely changes the effect of this ballot measure if the law stays in place.
0: It was an anticipatory piece of legislation knowing this was headed for the ballot.
1: Yes, which is kind of wild. Wow. Like The ballot people had their language approved. They were out gathering signatures. And mostly Democrats, but actually uh, at least one rural Republican in the legislature, looked at it and said, this is going to be devastating for rural Colorado. You read the number, $1 billion in lost revenue a for little local more, governments. actually, yeah. Yeah. And so they rewrote the tax code in a way that now the language of this ballot measure only applies to multifamily, so like apartment buildings – and lodging, uh, hotels, resorts, stuff like that. The same bill, because they also acknowledge that property values really have increased and that that is going to put the squeeze on people. That bill did include a two-year rate cut that will kind of help blunt some of that and a provision that lets people defer really large increases in their property taxes until they sell their house. So lawmakers said, hey, we're sympathetic, but we just don't think that local governments can afford this cut, so we're going to undercut it uh, and give you something else instead.
0: If this passes, it doesn't really pass on its face.
1: Well, this is another if. (laughs) (laughs) uh, And writing the ballot guide for this one really broke my brain because, of course, the people who put this on the ballot, and they are the same group that is behind Amendment 78, they said if this passes, they're going to sue to overturn that new law. So it's branching possibilities, like this might not pass, and this is all moot. It might pass, and it probably will. Even opponents say that it's likely uh, that voters will agree that there should be lower property tax rates. But if it does, then either this law takes effect, and it has very little impact, or— We have a court fight. We have a court fight, and if the backers of Prop uh, 120 are successful, then everybody might be getting a 9% rate cut.
0: It will not be decided election night is the point.
1: No, it will just be through one phase, One phase, election night.
0: One hoop. I can see why it made your brain hurt. Thank it you is. for sharing the brain pain.
1: <laughs> I will say one thing that, that I found kind of interesting is because of the change in the law, there's not really a large organized opposition to this. Normally, you would see like schools and fire districts and lots of groups coming out and saying, oh, my gosh, please don't, don't cut your property tax rates. But under the new law, it only has like a $50 million impact, which is large on the face, but pretty small spread out across the state.
0: Well, apparently those who oppose this have enough faith in the anticipatory law that was passed that they are not investing big time in defeating Prop 120.
1: No, they told me they talked to a lot of lawyers this spring (laughs) trying (laughs) to make their law ironclad. But it is, frankly, a fascinating question. Can the legislature preemptively try to do an end run around something that, that voters are going to get to decide on.
0: Megan, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank for... you, Ryan,
1: for letting me talk about this.
0: Yeah, it's an experiment. Usually I'm better prepared.
1: I think you did great.
0: Megan Verlee is CPR's public affairs editor. She's also in charge of our politics podcast, Purplish, which, if you haven't discovered it yet, is relevant and engaging. Megan helped us understand Amendment 78 and Prop 120, on this year's ballot. Now, a closer look at Proposition 119, the Learning, Enrichment, and Academic Progress Program. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland and education reporter Jenny Brendine are here. Hello to you both. Thanks Hello, for ben. having us. Benta, give us the basics. What would Prop 119 do?
3: It asks voters to increase sales taxes for recreational mon- marijuana by 5% from 15 to 20%. It would also take about $20 million in the first year from the school trust lands, and that trust oversees public lands that generate revenue for public schools. And then all of this money would help pay for low-income students to get after-school tutoring or enrichment programs. It also lets parents pick a program. That best fits their child's developmental needs, so it could be a private provider.
0: Okay, so the numbers there once again raising sales taxes on a recreational pot by five percent, so from fifteen to twenty percent, plus those public uh, lands funds. How would it be set up, Benta?
3: To manage this new program. Proposition 119 would create an independent agency, and that would be within the Colorado Department of Education. And then it would be overseen by a nine-member board of directors, and Governor Jared Polis would appoint that board.
0: How would the distribution of the money work?
3: So starting in 2023, the agency would award families with at least $1,500 a credit per student, and families with household incomes at or below the poverty level would get priority. And then next in line for funding would be families with income less than twice the poverty level. If there is money left over, it would be open to non-low-income families.
0: I know that, uh, as you said, it's possible there are providers in this that are private, not just public.
3: Right, like the Boys and Girls Club or a private tutoring company, summer camps. Uh, services for children with special needs. And then there are a range of approved uses for these funds, so mental health services, hmm. language instruction. So families would then choose what, what they need, and the money will be transferred, and it would be transferred from the agency to the service provider. So this doesn't require families to put up the money first and then get reimbursed, and that's a misconception that's been out there.
0: I'm curious who's behind Prop 119.
3: The nonprofit Gary Community Ventures is spearheading this bipartisan effort, and supporters say the money will help close long-standing achievement gaps, and gaps that have only widened during the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Jenny Brandine education reporter here at CPR, you spent time with a family that would likely benefit from this measure. Tell us about them.
4: Yeah, I visited a Denver family of seven, so five kids. Mom and dad work multiple part-time jobs to pay for their apartment, utilities, phone, and food. And when I arrived at the apartment, two boys, five and six, they were watching a YouTube instructional video on spelling words. Their mother told me that they struggle with reading. And education is everything to her. So the family, starting this week, will pay about $400 a month for three of the children to get tutoring. And this is going to be a huge sacrifice. So the mother was pretty excited to hear about Proposition 119. She said it would give her children a chance to change their lives. And here's one of her son's 14-year-old, Sanados.
5: My mom could use the extra cash for tutoring or lessons that we wish we could go to, education we could spend on, like tutoring and like, extra particular sports like soccer, karate, boxing, stuff like that.
0: Jenny, what are the roots of this measure? Why is this group, uh, as Benta told us, the Gary Community Ventures, Like, why are they focusing on after-school activities?
4: Yeah, Proposition 119 has its roots in a project that was carried out is carried out by a Colorado nonprofit called Reschool. And since 2015, they've worked on this idea of giving families cash or financial credit for after-school learning. Research shows that kids spend about 80% of their time outside of school. And it turns out what they do there really does matter. It can help build academic and social skills for school and for later in life. Uh, Reschool has drawn on the longitudinal studies of families by Harvard professor Robert Putnam. Here's Amy Anderson of Reschool.
3: What he saw was that when kids are blocked off from having enrichment opportunities, it means that they might not graduate high school to the same extent as other kids. They won't develop the same social networks that are people who are influencers and mentors that help them later in life.
0: Benta, there are some supporters in the education world, but there are also opponents in that realm. The recreational marijuana industry is opposed, correct?
3: Yes, that's right. And opponents from the marijuana industry note that their product is already highly taxed and that increasing the sales tax further is regressive because it places an increased financial burden on low-income buyers, especially groups like veterans and the elderly The marijuana industry also warns it would increase the price gap between legal marijuana and the black market. And and this could potentially push more people to purchase marijuana illegally. Other opponents don't like where this money will be spent.
0: Right, Jenny. Some education advocates say Prop 119 has a laudable goal to give kids after school learning opportunities. But this is not the right avenue, huh?
4: Yeah, they have many reasons that they oppose it. One being public dollars going to private companies. They say there isn't enough accountability with the new independent agency, which will set the terms of the contracts and and what the salaries will be. They say a board appointed by the governor that oversees the agency isn't enough oversight compared to all the regulations that schools are saddled with. Supporters of the measure, though, say they'll have a yearly independent financial audit, and they're accountable to the General Assembly.
0: Among those who oppose it in the education world, my understanding is that their biggest argument is a fiscal one, Jenny.
4: Yeah, they say they've been trying to get extra resources, additional resources, for schools for years and years. Colorado still spends well below the national average per student, And Proposition 119, most importantly, would divert $21 million from the State Land Trust Fund, which supports public schools, as Benta mentioned. One analyst told me, you can think of it like a choice between spending now for this new out-of-school learning program for low-income children or continuing to grow a long-term resource that helps support K-12 funding through interest and other earnings. So in total, it's estimated it will reduce earnings in that school lands fund by about $48 million over a 10-year period. Brett Miles, he heads up Colorado's Association of School school, uh, Executives. Their council just took a no vote on it, and he says there's an additional concern, and this is it. This is really another measure asking for another cannabis tax increase. And it's going to make it much harder to explain the full story to voters in the future about why schools need more money.
0: So we're going to have once again, well, I thought schools were fixed last time with all the pot money. No, no. That went to a capital construction program. It's very specifically targeted. You know, some people win those grants. Some people don't win those grants. It didn't fix funding in public education. And this adds another incredible hurdle into telling the story of what's happening with public education funding. The backers of Prop 119 have a counter to that argument, Jenny. They say to give K-12 through the billions of dollars it needs, that would take an income tax increase.
4: Yes, and that's been tried three times and voters said no three times. So supporters argue that schools have been solely responsible for solving the achievement gap, which in effect is rooted in social inequities. And they say it's time to bring other partners in, along with parents— who know their children, what their children need, to help kids catch up and give them experiences, develop them socially and as human beings, just like the experiences wealthier kids get.
0: Okay, so they're saying we've tried other avenues, and this is a new one. Benta, a little more perhaps on the political dynamics before we go.
3: Sure. The politics behind this aren't as partisan as we see on a lot of issues. It has support and opposition from both sides of the aisle, The Colorado Democratic Party voted to oppose it yet Democratic Governor Jared Polis and former Democratic Governors Bill Ritter and Roy Romer back it. Mm. Uh, So does Republican former Governor Bill Owens. And some conservatives see this as a good thing because it gives parents more choice to pick potentially a private program. And parental choice in education is a top priority for the GOP, yet it also raises taxes. So the state Republican Party took a neutral position on the measure. I would note that so far supporters have raised significantly more money than opponents. According to the latest campaign finance reports, about $1.8 million. But we will see more money flowing in as it gets a little bit closer to the election.
0: It's in the low thousands at this point for the critics. Thank you both for being with us. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you. Thanks, Ryan.
0: You heard from CPR public affairs reporter Benta Birkeland and education reporter Jenny Brundine, breaking down Prop 119. Much more in our election guide at CPR.org. Election Day is November 2nd. Ballots must be received by that date. So the Secretary of State advises that you use a Dropbox rather than the mail starting October 26th. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a wildfire that a year later lives up to its name. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. For a few Colorado governors, the state's highest office was the family business. In the years before statehood, John Evans and his son-in-law Samuel Elbert served in the role. Two of the state's front-range 14ers are named for them. Elias Ammons served a term as governor in the 19-teens, followed 20 years later by his son Teller, Colorado's first native-born governor. And then there's the Adams family brothers Alva and Billy each had three gubernatorial terms. Adams County is named for Billy. Alva put his name on Adams State University in Alamosa. And although his son Alva B. Adams never made it to the governor's mansion, he was a U.S. senator and got his name on a water diversion tunnel under Rocky Mountain National Park. With thanks to historian Derek Everett, this is a Colorado postcard from CPR. No one expected what came next when the East Troublesome Fire ignited around this time last year. The winds picked up, and dry conditions fueled the flames, scorching nearly 190,000 acres. Grand Lake and Estes Park were placed under mandatory evacuation. Two people died. More than 300 homes were destroyed. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis checked in with survivors.
6: On the outside of a large log home in Grand County hangs a thin metal sign. It reads, Welcome to the Olsons. The sign is slightly twisted and bent. Its surface and color show a smoky gray patina from the damage it suffered in the East Troublesome Fire. Hi, how you doing? Jeff Olson, his wife Shelly, and their dog Rambo welcome me at the door. Uh, This
1: is Rambo, he's nice.
6: Shelly Olson gives me a tour of their new home, which they bought after their place burned down last October. She points to a few other things that survived the fire.
2: That's my bracelet, watch. This is Jeff's CU Buffalo class ring. It was onyx and gold. It looks like it got cooked, so.
6: There's a vase in the bathroom that survived the flames. And in the guest bedroom are a few small figurines that also made it through the fire.
2: Everyone handles the trauma and the grief differently. I still don't feel okay. It doesn't feel quite like home. I'm working through that. Um, definitely, a lot of therapy.
6: Olson is familiar with fire. She's a first responder. She's the assistant chief at Grand Fire Protection District Number One, and part of her job is to talk to people who have had their lives completely derailed by fire. Now the roles are flipped. She's learning firsthand what life is like as a wildfire survivor. That struggle started when she returned to the neighborhood
2: where she lived for more than 20 years. It looked like a war zone. The ranch in front of us, 29 buildings were just leveled. You were surrounded by the burn because it hit the forest, it hit the park, it hit the golf course. It was 360 degrees. Olson and her husband didn't want to rebuild. I just could not see myself living there, and going there every day, and it was just too much.
6: So they started looking for a new home, away from Grand Lake, maybe Evergreen or Glenwood Springs. But Olsen eventually realized she didn't want to leave her community entirely.
2: Even now, in the last three days, I've had three other gals who are my friends reach out. And as we come upon this anniversary, just very full of um, anxiety and Sadness, and it's, it's really comforting to know that we're all right here and we can just drive over and see each other.
6: A friend and former neighbor of Olson's did decide to rebuild. Matthew Reed Tullinan is with a construction crew where his home burned down. A brand new house has taken its place.
5: They are doing finished trim work, hanging doors. Hopefully by Monday we have a kitchen.
6: He and his family hope to move in soon.
5: Christmas is the goal. It has been from the beginning
6: Reed Tolanen, his wife, and their daughter have been renting as they've worked to rebuild. To them, this is still their dream spot for a home.
0: A lot of it had to do with our neighbors, some of which
5: aren't coming back, unfortunately. But uh, they're, they're still friends, and they
0: will be forever. So,
6: Reed Tolanen says the community, including contractors, suppliers, and business owners, rallied to help people rebuild quickly.
0: That includes the lumber
5: yards, the sawmills, dropping stuff for us getting us material over other people. It's been pretty great on that level.
6: Reed Tolanen says he was $300,000 underinsured. That's the case for many people who lost their homes in the fire. And it's making it hard to rebuild. In the window of Marjorie Cranston's art gallery in Grand Lake, there's a chalkboard. Still on it is what Cranston wrote as soon as she was allowed to return to her gallery, about a week after the fire. She was relieved to find everything inside was okay. She grabbed some chalk and wrote, The fire took my
4: home. It did not take my heart. The fire took my art. It did not burn my will to create. The fire consumed my comfort. It did not take my soul. It never destroyed my faith in God. Welcome to my studio. It remains.
6: When visitors come to Cranston's art gallery and see this message she wrote after the fire, she says they open up and talk about their own personal struggles. It's been meaningful, I think,
4: to people to see that you can go through something and have hope.
6: Cranston's art gallery has been on Grand Avenue for more than 20 years. She's an impressionist who mostly works in pastel. After the fire, her painting started focusing on scenes of regrowth and healing. She points to
4: a landscape hanging on the wall. So you just see the sticks and you know the willows that were burned and you know the remnants of trees, the burn scar, which is really black, and then this bright green grass. And it was beautiful.
6: Cranston has also decided to rebuild her home, but she too was underinsured. So she's had to be resourceful to rebuild her house piece by piece. She bought all of her light fixtures off of
4: eBay and other secondhand websites. Okay, what am I going to do on the outside of this house because I can't afford anything right now?
6: So she had discount siding shipped in from another state. She saved money by collecting all of these pieces for her new home, which just finished framing. So it's been a
4: challenge, which I accept, actually, because I want to go home.
6: Cranston, like most people who rebuild after a wildfire, says dealing with her insurance company is a nightmare. It starts with having to create a detailed list of every personal item lost in the fire.
4: Just for an experiment, sit down and take a room in your home. Then start listing everything in your head of what's in that room, where you got it, what year.
6: That includes the food in your refrigerator, all the things in your drawers. While some are rebuilding or buying new homes, the East Troublesome Fire forced many people out of Grand County permanently. Candace Cole now lives 100 miles away near Fort Collins.
2: It was actually a fairly easy decision for us because the reason that we moved up there was for the beautiful views and the beautiful trees. And we just kind of looked around and said, I just don't think we can come back.
6: Cole says it was too expensive to rebuild, even with insurance. And many of the people that made living in Grand County so great also moved away after the fire. Cole is a native to Colorado and says it's heartbreaking how much these communities lose after these wildfires, which will likely get bigger
2: and hotter as the world gets warmer. Climate change is real and we need to actually do something about it. It's just very frustrating because you see these fires and you see the drought. That's just not not normal, not stuff that we saw 10 or 15 or 20 years ago.
6: Cole has a new house in a new neighborhood in a new town. But the East Troublesome Fire burned away something that's not material, her sense of community. She says that's going to be the hardest thing to rebuild. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News.
0: By the way, the East Troublesome Fire is the second largest in Colorado's recorded history. It started in the Arapaho National Forest, but a year later, Investigators still don't know how it started. The Colorado Plateau is a huge outdoor playground in southwest Colorado and three neighboring states. It has an abundance of national and state parks, monuments, and wilderness areas. A new guidebook reveals hidden wonders of the plateau, including perfect spots for fall and winter visits. That's when author Bill Haggerty writes, It's no longer hotter than Hades. And Bill joins us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Bill, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Tell us exactly what the Colorado Plateau is.
5: <laughs> That's a good question. Most people don't know. Um, if you're sitting in front of a map of the Western United States and you set your coffee cup down on Denver and you spill it, <laughs> it's going to create a big stain. <laughs> on the map that pretty much covers the Four Corners area of Arizona, Colorado, Utah, and New Mexico. So that's basically the Colorado Plateau. It goes from um, the north rim of the Grand Canyon, Flagstaff, all the way up uh, east of Salt Lake City to Dinosaur National Monument, and then down almost to Albuquerque. Um my particular book skips the San Juan, Southern San Juan Mountains, even though a lot of geologists would say that's also part of the Colorado Plateau. And that's, I, that's generally what you're talking about. <laughs> when
0: I think of the term plateau as being a kind of higher flat thing in comparison to the land around it. Is that the right thinking?
5: Well, it is. Um, Because the plateau itself is a relatively stable chunk of rock, Mm. Um, and it's kind of based along the fault lines way down under the earth. But even though it's a stable piece of rock, um, because of the altitude and because of the terrain, it looks really ripped up, mostly by water, mostly by the Colorado River, the Green River, and their tributaries. Um, so it looks very eroded but in general it is a pretty stable
0: chunk of rock you have primarily written hiking books uh, but this new one also includes rafting bike rides drives events even restaurant recommendations sounds positively overwhelming like how do you decide what to include
5: uh well well that was that was tough but I'll tell you the way it started was I decided what not to include, <laughs> and that was really the major parks. You know, there's nothing in this book about Zion, Bryce, Arches. You know, the major ones, um, because those areas, those national parks, are simply loved to death right now. They're totally overrun with people, and I wanted. I wanted people to get out and discover the rest of the plateau. Um, it's 140,000 square miles and there's a lot of property out there that people just don't know about. And it's all public. Um, the parts that are not public are on, um, Native American reservations. The Navajo, that's the largest Navajo nation, um, largest, you know, Native American reservation in the United States right now. So there's a lot of property out there that people can visit without getting overrun um, in those national parks. So that's kind of how I started. (laughs) Spread out, people.
0: There's room for all of us. Right, yeah. Right. I know that you happened upon the Bluff International Balloon Festival, and it really struck your fancy.
5: Oh, it was so fun. It's in the middle of January every year, so it's cold but it's nothing like the albuquerque balloon festival you know where they get hundreds and hundreds of balloons the bluff international usually gets you know 7 8 10 15 balloons maybe it's it was made international by a uh, gentleman from germany who came and flew one year but it's a it's a relatively small very tight-knit gathering, and if you show up uh, to the Bluff Elementary School on the Friday night before it happens, it's <laughs> usually the middle weekend of January, you'll get a taco dinner and a Navajo fry bread and uh, and support the school a little bit, and you can meet these pilots who fly, and you can become part of their, uh, their crew for the next day, and you might even get a flight yourself.
0: In Bluff, Utah, the Bluff International Balloon Festival you know, the explorer John Wesley Powell named the area you write about. Um, he called it the Colorado Plateau province 150 years ago. You describe him in your book as a crazy one-armed dude with no idea what he was doing. Could, could you relate to him, though, in some ways, in your own wanderings oh. on the plateau? Oh, absolutely.
5: Absolutely. I I'd, I'd think the main difference between John Wesley Powell and me is that even with one arm, he could still probably row a boat better than I could.
0: <laughs> <laughs> did you spend much time on the river?
5: I spent, yeah, I uh, did a trip down Desolation Gray Canyons on the, uh, the Green River. I also rafted the San Juan River outside of Bluff, actually. Um, and the rivers are really what does define the plateau. Uh, like I said, you know, it's a relatively stable chunk of block, block of earth, but it's really sliced through from these rivers. And, and one of the things that I think people don't understand about the, the Colorado River and, and all of its tributaries is that it starts here high in the Rockies at 14,000 feet. And by the time it leaves Grand Junction, you know, just in the state, it's already dropped, you know, about 9,000 feet in elevation, mm. and it's dropping a lot more by the time it gets to the Grand Canyon. So the water comes here, none of it stays in Colorado. It all leaves, and it leaves fast. So it's really slicing through a, a lot of country that is, you know, relatively loose, unstable rock on the top of it. Once it gets down to that bedrock, it's solid, but, you know, the stuff on the top is pretty loose and pretty wild. And that's what really creates our canyonlands. lands. These, these beautiful multicolored canyons and hoodoos and arches and pinnacles are really, you know, the result of erosion. Water, wind, ice freezing and melting, you know, but mostly, mostly that water. Even though this is the least watered portion
0: of the United States, right. essentially. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and the guidebook author Bill Haggerty joins us. His latest is called Discovering the Colorado Plateau, a guide to the region's hidden wonders. And uh, perhaps we can get to a few more of those wonders. Two that come to mind are Coral Pink Sand Dunes State Park in southern Utah and Bistai denazan Wilderness Area in northern New Mexico. Tell us about those
5: all oh, fascinating places. Most people have never, ever heard of Bistai de Nazin. It was a wilderness area that was actually established by Ronald Reagan way back when, and it's some of the weirdest, wildest rock you have ever seen in your life, Ryan. I mean, hmm. I don't know how the, some of this stuff was was created. It was basically, you know, a lot of volcanic cinder block, and and it's just crunched down to some weird, strange, odd rock. And it's, there's, I mean, there's no vegetation out there at all. It may be a one or two barrel cactus and a couple of other plants. I think scientists say there are actually eight different plant species out there, but that's it. Mm. I mean, it is It is wild and rugged and it's south of Farmington, about 40 miles south of Farmington, New Mexico. Um, the other the other one you just mentioned, Coral Pink Sand Dunes, uh, is along the Arizona Strip. Really, the it's a state park in Utah that's right on the Arizona border, near Colorado City and Hinsdale and mm. Fredona, Arizona. Um, really, really unique. It's really the only sand dune on the Colorado Plateau, uh, created by uh, wind whipping through a couple of mountains to the west of it and just whipping this, this beautiful, beautiful Navajo sands right through this uh, uh, gap. And it's just created some magnificent
0: sand dunes. And when the sun is either rising or setting, I can't quite tell from these photographs, the sky and the sand take on similar hues of pink. I mean, just magnificent. Two out-of-the-way places you like in Colorado— are the Sand Canyon Pueblo and the nearby Cutthroat Castle Ruins near Cortez. What stands out to you? Um, really, really
5: beautiful examples of, of archaeology and architecture from a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, sand Castle in the Canyon of the Ancients National Monument Actually, cuts across uh, the Utah border from Colorado into Hovenweep National Monument, which is where Cutthroat Castle is located. Um, really, really fine examples of of uh, Native American um, architecture and art. Beautiful, beautiful canyons. Pretty easily accessible. Um, People can find them. They're well delineated. Uh, the places that you can walk through are safe, and and uh, you're not going to mess up too much of the archaeology okay. because it's already been plundered years okay. ago. But you know <laughs> the stuff, the stuff that hasn't been plundered is still standing, and you can really feel. You know, you can walk the path of the ancient ones. You can really feel their spirit in those canyons. It's a, they're beautiful places to go visit.
0: You opened the book with a quote from the late sitar musician Ravi Shankar, and I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said that people are living more in their heads than in their hearts and are filling silences with too many words. Bill, you strike me as a wordsmith. Do you have to fight against filling the silence when you're on the Colorado Plateau?
5: Oh, Ryan, that's a good question. Yes. I think we all have to fight that, but we also have to embrace it. I think one of the healthiest things for me on this trip was, you know, embracing that silence, embracing that, that space. I needed to do a little contemplation in nature and, and with big, wide open skies and no traffic and few people it's a really good place to kind of reconnect to your own soul.
0: Hmm. I know that in addition to the pandemic, you had some health struggles and some family struggles, and it sounds as though the plateau was something of a healing place for you, Uh, more to be revealed if you read this uh, new guidebook. Uh, Just in the last few moments, you have a few essays in the book about Colorado Plateau characters and animals that piqued your interest? Is it the kaibab squirrel? Kaibab? (laughs) The great
5: elusive kaibab squirrel. One of the best safaris I've ever been on was a photo safari going to look for kaibab squirrels. Uh, it's a very very unique squirrel. It's only found there, uh, actually in Grand Canyon Parachant National Monument and on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Hmm. It's very similar to an Abert's squirrel here in Colorado that people might, you know, know about it. The Aberts the are pure black. They've got funky little tufts of hair on their ears. <laughs> The kaibab squirrel has those funky little tufts of, of hair. It's also got a little bit of a red streak on its back and pure white tails. So they're pretty unique. And it was fun just chasing them around with my camera for a few days. I had a great time.
0: The kaibab squirrel. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for sharing the people, places, and critters of the Colorado Plateau. Oh, you bet. Great talking to you, Ryan. Bill Haggerty is the author of Discovering the Colorado Plateau, and he joined us from our Grand Junction studio on Main Street. Before we go, we want your gardening questions. As temperatures drop, how best to tend to plants outside? And what indoor life might brighten up your winter? Email Matters at cpr.org. Again, your gardening questions to coloradomatters at cpr.org. And that is our show for today, with thanks to colleagues who never plateau.
5: Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton,
0: Pete Kramer,
4: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
0: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
1: Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill,
0: Pedro Lumbrano,
1: Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nancy Lofholm. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.